0: Up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys, and passions, and insights. We are hosted by Breakline
1: Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color, or a veteran, or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined here today by Stephanie Kirkpatrick, founder and CEO of Aurum.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Bethany, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to spend time with you today and not only to talk about what we're building at Orem and the sort of very important problem that our infrastructure solves, but how we're building it. And specifically our point of view on diversity and remote work. So I think it's gonna be a great conversation.
1: I'm so excited to dive into all those topics. And Stephanie, as we get started, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself with our listeners, help them understand your background, your career to date, and the vision that you had for this company that you've started and that you and your team are building together.
0: Sure. I'm happy to go back in time. A lot of the story for Orem starts actually as I got out of college and found myself in financial services working as a certified financial planner. Where I was able to connect with everyday American households who were solving for hard questions, things in the margin. I have a medical bill and I've been told I should be saving for retirement. Is it more important to pay my medical bill or to put $500 towards my IRA this year, which might be tax deductible? Like very hard, emotional, high impact questions that to me set the stage for everything I was going to do next in my career. And I come from a background where my dad was an immigrant, came to the US when he was seven. As a refugee from a war torn country, and have experienced firsthand what it looks like not to be able to make ends meet and how it feels not to have credit, not to have access to the broader financial system. And so it's just been an area of passion of mine. So my first foray into financial services ultimately led me to starting to work in my free time, literally. On a project i asked my boss at the time i said you know cd-rom that we used to get that had like this little financial planning product on it stopped coming every quarter for its updates and we were like oh no what do we do and i said you know oh i just took my cfp classes and this is just math i think i can build it and i asked for a five thousand dollar budget and i got granted that budget and i went online to elance which sounds kind of crazy now decades later And I found an American who had moved to India to build a dev shop, and I started working on a retirement planning product that we eventually trademarked, turned into software, and ultimately sold. And it was in that journey of building something in my spare time that I realized that there was a way to have more impact through technology to reach the American wallet better and differently than just being a CFP working with a set of clients. And so that transformed how I was going to think about my next few steps. And I was able to join a company called LearnVest very early in my career, in which the whole focus was to build technology to help make financial planning accessible to the 99%. And that's where the wheels started to click into place for what is now Orem. Because in that journey, we actually ended up selling LearnVest to a company called Northwestern Mutual, a fantastic life insurance platform. And I saw on the other side of selling that company, six and a half million Americans getting really, really good financial advice, bought into it, excited about it. And then I saw almost every time some percentage, usually more than 50% of that advice never got executed. And I wanted to kind of build like what I call the easy button for your financial life. I wanted it to feel simple to execute automatic savings, automatic investing. And I wanted it to be something that was done for you. And so that set me on a journey to figure out why doesn't money move automatically? Well, it doesn't move automatically because it doesn't move instantly. Well, why doesn't it move instantly? I'm like slowly digging away at this very complex problem and finding the aha, which is that actually all of our financial services sit on a 50-year-old outdated infrastructure that was built in an era that doesn't contemplate real-time everything. And everything in our lives is real-time now. And so that's where it started, right? It's that blood of being a financial planner, of wanting to help underserved American households find access to be able to do more financially and ultimately to have the kind of impact that can change the entire economic fabric of a country. Just big ambition that powers us every day to build better pipes and better infrastructure for the American wallet. It's so interesting as I get to tell this story. You know, our vision is ultimately to power a better financial system where everyone has the freedom to build to their potential. It's in my heart deeply that we believe that by giving people the confidence to instantly access their own money, we can bring financial opportunity to all, not just a few. Bridging that financial gap helps us build a better, more ambitious future for America. So that's a little bit of a journey and a bit of a story.
1: I love hearing about that journey. I love hearing about it in your own words and also the intersection between your personal experience, your lived experience, and this opportunity that you're seeing to disrupt, I think, what's a $70 trillion industry. So the opportunity is massive, but your lived experience was a really crucial component of the insight that you had around why this is so important, and it reminded me of a quote I read somewhere, which is that it's really expensive to be poor in this country, and the average American household has $400. And so when we talk about the delays in moving money around, you've talked about delays of three to six days on average, That can be the difference, as you said, between choosing your meal and choosing your medicine. Can you talk to us a little bit about that day-to-day experience, why it's fraught for everyday Americans and share a little bit more about what it feels like to be waiting to have access to, as you said, your own money?
0: You know, it's such a powerful question because I think for many of us, we don't experience it, right? Or we've experienced it in the margin. For many American households, and I mean millions of American households, waiting five days to have your own money hit your bank account and to have that only happen periodically can be paralyzing as you are working with dates of bill payments and rent due and other things and having it all stacked against you, so to speak. So we've really put the problem in the hands of the consumer. And I think the good news is the bias to real time, Amazon, Uber, right, you name it, has me to stop and think and say, this isn't okay. And what's so fascinating is, you know, for a long time in financial services, the conversation was about behavior change. Well, if we could just change the behavior of Americans, if we could just get them to save more. And I hypothesize that it isn't about behavior change. It's actually about changing a broken system. My hypothesis is, and, I, and it's being proven every day as we build Orem and as we serve customers, is that you can do more if you just give people the opportunity to have that liquidity. So for example, I might only have $5 that could go into a savings account or an investment account. The good news is today, you can buy fractional shares on lots of platforms. So that's not a barrier anymore. The bad news is if at 2 p.m. on a Sunday, the money I have tied up in a high yield savings that's not with my bank or that maybe even in an investment account, if I had an emergency, like you said, Americans have less than $400 in the bank and I need that money, well, it's Saturday, so I can't get it. And if I want to start getting access to it, I start the process on Monday and ideally by Friday I have it. That's not good enough. And so what Oram has done is we've used the real-time payment network and we've made it possible that at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, 2 p.m. on a Saturday, when banks are closed, when the traditional system doesn't operate, we settle those funds 24-7, 365, at night, on the weekends, on holidays. And the feedback loop of getting somebody comfortable putting their precious $5 in a place that is net good for them is far greater when they know that just in case, they can get it back instantly and they can get it back in 15 seconds if they have to. That just amps up the ability to put it in. And once it's in, it now has the chance to earn interest compound. It now has the chance to grow. Those are the kinds of things that we're breaking down when we fix a broken system is the inequality of access that isn't about behavior change. It's fundamentally about access to money and liquidity at the right moment in time, all predicated on an outdated way of thinking about money movement. So it's very powerful when I think we dig into kind of both root cause and ultimately what it can do if we simply fix the most important layer, which is the speed at which and the certainty by which money can move and ultimately settle for various financial transactions.
1: I love it so much. And as you were sharing that additional detail, I was thinking about two of our break liners. It's actually a couple the husband is Rocky, he's an immigrant from Tonga, and the wife is a woman named T. And they both had these experiences coming from low-income households. I remember T talking about working three jobs, living mm-hmm. in her car. She said, I felt like I was on a treadmill, just running, mm-hmm. running, trying to keep up and not going anywhere. And both of them came through line, and they're doing extraordinarily well. And Rocky said recently, we used to just focus on surviving and now we're focusing on thriving. I love and it. That's, yes. And that's what Orem is
0: enabling your customers to do, just by having real-time access to their own money. It's so powerful. And the idea that we could help households thrive. Now, here's the crazy thing. Anyone listening is never going to see an app from Orem, right? You're never going to see Orem's name anywhere. We are the pipes. We're the infrastructure behind all of these next-generation financial services products. And if we do our jobs right, I think the question isn't how fast can we move money? That is the thing we're solving. The question is, what would you build better and different in financial services if we didn't need payday loans and we didn't need early wage access products because you could get paid in real time? What would we build if money moved in real time all the time? And I think that is the tipping point, not only for helping Americans go from surviving to thriving but ultimately for pioneering a generation of innovation and financial services that is unforeseen, right? It is net new territory in the next decade is going to show us that with the right baseline infrastructure for money movement, the Chimes, the Robin Hoods, the no-names that haven't been built yet, that haven't even been thought of yet are going to come and they're going to do something vastly different and even better than they've done already, just predicated on the idea that liquidity and access to money movement is now real time. So it's an exciting chapter in writing this story for where I think infrastructure is normally not seen, right? It's kind of the thing we don't talk about. We talk about all those consumer apps and to be able to be in a position to say it's the infrastructure that makes the consumer application built better, it's one of the most exciting reasons to be doing what we're doing every day. It occurs to me that your company has such a
1: strong mission and you talk about actually really... Evaluating that as you and your team interview folks who are interested in joining, or Mm -hmm. I'm really looking for alignment in terms of the mission. I recently interviewed Nicole Camarillo, who's the COO of Rebellion Defense, and she was talking about the competitive advantage of having a mission driven company and how, like, yes, you can go build the next app for meal delivery or this or that, and all of that is fine. But if you really want to put your stamp on society, this is an unusually opportune moment to do so. Can you talk to us about just that environment, the sense that you're building a big business, and if you succeed, it's also developing an extraordinary amount of social impact?
0: I do think you're right that the social impact piece is one, both very natural to me, and I think actually a result of where a lot of my technology career started, which is the company I mentioned, Furnvest, where we were just so passionate about everyday Americans getting access to a financial plan. We were going to run through walls to solve that problem. And I experienced firsthand what it felt like to be in a company where the mission was so big and so powerful and that we'd have to work on it for decades. And that just waking up with that energy every day in our hearts was was so powerful. And so it fueled every other career choice i made, number one. And number two, it certainly influenced the idea that we should be doing good in the world. We should be leaving the world better than we found it. And I think to build innovative products like Aurum that reshape daily life, I firmly believe that you must put together a multidimensional team. And that team absolutely wants to feel the impact of their work. And we get people all the time in the interview process who tell us incredible life stories about how they grew up, what they've experienced. Like you said, the quote's been said many times, you know, being poor is expensive. Many people have felt this problem or they've been building businesses. They've come from consumer platforms where this was the problem that no one could solve, real-time money movement. And so by having team members with completely different skills and perspectives from a variety of industries... That multi dimensional framework of humans and human capital, it's what allows for greater problem solving. And so now we're in a position to not only think innovatively about the social impact and greater good of the products we put out into the world, but also of the impact we're going to leave in the workplace itself and with each person that we come across that interacts with Orem for a year, two years, five years, whatever it may be. And as I go back in time, actually, our first investor was Inspired Capital, Alexa Von Tobel. She was originally the founder and CEO of LearnVest and then founded Inspired Capital. And when we sat down and I was kind of you know, spitballing the idea about becoming more focused on what I'm now doing for Orem, she said, oh my gosh, I ha- we have to do this. I'm going to write your inspiration check. And so from day one, the idea of inspiration was ingrained. And you know, we started with, at the time, all-female board, now 50% female. We've endeavored to have the cap table highly diverse. And I think that that shows in both how we show up every day in the mission we're focused on and the vision we have, and in the people we bring through the company. And so I think that commitment to diversity and diversity of thought and inclusion, belonging, accessibility, it's not just a talk track. It is from the boardroom to the office of the CEO, to the executive suite, to every employee that we hire, true front to back, that... The best businesses are truly built with multidimensional teams. If I think about one, the impact I want ORM to have, like I said, I think the American wallet is big. I also feel like I'm in a position, luckily and fortunately, to fix what I can. I cannot fix it all, but can we fix a broken rung? Can we shatter a glass ceiling? Can we open a door? So you'll find in our hiring policies that we've worked really hard to remove what I think is traditional bias and selection bias. For example, Jobs here don't require a bachelor's degree. In fact, we have a senior executive who does not have a bachelor's degree and is an extraordinary operator. Um, Education alone certainly does not make for the smartest or best hire. So we've tried to really endeavor to say in our top of funnel as we look at candidates, our commitment to underrepresented, Latinx, Black, persons of color, and other types of underrepresentation are hugely important to us. And so you know what, it might take longer to fill a role. And we're okay with that. And you do have to look in different places. And by being remote, actually, there are so many folks that would love a job in tech. And they live in Iowa. They live in Florida. I guess you could argue Miami is becoming a tech scene, at least by way of crypto. But the vast majority of the country is not a tech hub like San Francisco and New York or Seattle. And so by opening up, we've actually been able to bring in tremendously talented folks. We have a number of women on our engineering team that came out of career-changing programs where they were teachers previously, and now they're engineers building tech at Orem. Now, is the vast majority of the company never built something before? No, we've, we've all come from different backgrounds. But I think this just incredibly rich landscape of talent, when you go open to the entire country and you empower people who are parents, you know, I have two kids, age six and four and a half, and I don't know if I could have done this without the permission and opportunity to have some flexibility. And about 40% of the company is young parents, all of us dying a slow death of listening to Encanto over and over and over again. (laughs) And that's something we celebrate, you know, at Orem being a parent is like being a first-class citizen. Again, not entirely always true in tech where we've got to move really quickly. And like the next turn in the road is one we have to get to very, very fast. We also offer mental health Fridays. So the first Friday of every month, we break as a company. There's no greater gift as a parent or otherwise to have a day when your boss and your boss's boss and their boss are all not sending emails. So of course you can take PTO and people do and as they should. And it's also really fun once a month to say first Friday of the month, we go do something that's an investment in our mental health and we do it together. And there's no pressure to check email and, and be online because we work very hard, you know, the other days of the week and month to get there. So I do think we've really, really challenged ourselves from the perspective of building the best team and making sure that that's filled with diversity and opportunity to close wage gaps and to be part of making a better system for everybody that wants to be a part of it. That is
1: so awesome and so compelling. And I was thinking about when you were introducing yourself and you talked about your father as an immigrant Mm -hmm. to the US coming from a war-torn country and how your lived experience informed this professional insight Will you tell us a little bit about your dad and about where he came from and and a little bit about his journey? And the reason why I'm asking the question is because at Breakline, we give a ton of credit for lived experience because all of that ingenuity, all of that grit, all of those problem-solving skills come into the workplace with you you know, it's Absolutely. like, it's all additive. And so we think it's really bizarre that you're actually not supposed to talk about your life during an interview process when it's, you know, it's all very integrated. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your dad in particular, and how watching him and being part of your family helped you gain this insight for Oram.
0: I'd be glad to tell you about my dad. And uh, before I do, I will say, Someone said to me recently, the best interview questions to figure out who someone really is has to do with whether or not they played a sport and what kind of sport, because, you know, they did that thing in their life for many people for many, 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 many years. Was it a solo sport? Was it a team sport? And not that sports will be the answer to everything. But I think to your point, Bethany, when we don't talk about things that we've done for a decade or experiences that are lived and we don't talk about that personal side, there is a missed opportunity to know a little bit more about that person. And now it's very intimate. You are sitting somewhere in your house as you talk to me for this podcast. I'm sitting in what used to be my five-year-old's bedroom and we eventually made an office. And everyone's somewhere in between, right? We're in each other's bedrooms, living rooms. I know your kids, I know your family. So the intimacy of remote work and at a remote first company where this will be the way we always do it is actually for hire and being comfortable sharing a little bit more about ourselves is the starting point for really deep relationships. And really, I think, ultimately deep conviction for the way in which people are coming together and working very hard, even through 27 different states like Orem is today. Coming back to my dad. So my dad was born in the former Yugoslavia, which I think is, like I said, just this fundamentally different piece of who I am. And as I think about his experience spending seven years living underground, waiting for refugee status, coming to the U.S. by way of Ellis Island... And then entering into society, not speaking English, having come from a place where his mom did the sewing on a sewing machine without electricity, like foot powered. to like suddenly showing up in first New York and then ultimately Los Angeles, what a culture shock that is and how that shaped his ability, like you said, to have grit and determination to succeed and to ultimately assimilate. And the stories are rich of all the things that were part of my dad and his parents' life But as I was growing up, you know, there were various things um, that remain true in my life today that were influential about, for example, Christmas, which is, you know, a holiday that Americans love. And there's a lot of excess around and it's actually a holiday I don't love. And when people find that out, they're very surprised, right? Who doesn't love Christmas? Well, I don't love Christmas. I don't dislike snow and I don't dislike Christmas trees, but there's something about that sort of overindulgence. You know, my dad would say, oh gosh, you know, for Christmas we'd get like the equivalent of what we would consider like a clementine, right? Like a small citrus, and you would slowly peel it, and you would smell the oil of the citrus on your hands, and you would savor every moment, and then you would eat one slice today, and then you'd eat another slice tomorrow, and you would draw out that journey of enjoyment. It's like those really fascinating cultural differences that immigrants with struggle have experienced, and. My dad colored everything from like how I feel about Christmas to the grit of small business ownership. He built a business from scratch. It was amazing to watch him figure it out. And I would sit in his office with him and I was in charge of printing the invoices for the billing for his business and then taking off the perforations, you know, on the printer and then folding them. and At the time, licking the stamp because it was well before you know stamps were sticky. And like my job was to like help get the bills out, you know, and just like the the business was part of our household. And whatever it took, he was in it to do the night hours, the long days that I think, you know, the vast majority of Americans and especially immigrants experience as they work multiple jobs, as they try to stitch together that opportunity to succeed. And now at Orem, we face challenge every day. We face competitors in the market. We face headwinds of hiring in the you know the hardest talent market. We face headwinds on how fast we can build something. We face headwinds on customer attraction. Every, every company faces those headwinds at different times. And the influence of having seen a life that was led by someone who just never gave up, never stopped, has really taught me like you can literally run through a brick wall. You can do anything if you just put your heart to it. I think about that a lot as I'm faced with Hard problems every day running a company, whether those are people problems, are the people at my company safe, healthy, mentally doing okay, like through COVID where sometimes they're alone at home without a partner or solace at the outdoors and everything in between. How are we doing with our financials? How are we doing with our customer attraction? Is everything working in the tech? And never a day goes by, never an hour goes by that you don't think about something hard and then think to yourself, we'll get through this. And here's how. And we're just going to focus on 1% progress, 1% improvement towards solving those hard things. It's certainly an influential piece of my past. Thank you so much for sharing that, Stephanie. And
1: as you were talking about your father and your family and your experience there, I was thinking, I've probably interviewed 100 CEOs, something like that, for the Breakline Arena. And I bet 70 of them are either immigrants or first-gen American citizens. Immigration is a gift to this country, you know, to be a net importer of top talent from around the world. What a wonderful thing. And then to watch all these folks start businesses, create billions and millions of dollars of value, hire hundreds of thousands or millions of people. It's extraordinary. And so I just wanted
0: to thank you for sharing that part of your life experience. What's so extraordinary, like you said, I took an Uber home from New York City the other day at night. And the Uber driver asked me, do I know an employment lawyer? And I said, I, well, tell me what your question is. And then for the next 45 minutes, I'm Googling and answering questions. And he's telling me about his life. And he won the diversity lottery to get a visa. There's only 55000 given a year. He's from, uh, I'm forgetting where he's from. And ultimately, we just had this rich conversation. And he's like, well, now I'm going to help my family members who have won the lottery. And here's my income. And here's my savings. And this man has $100,000 saved. And I was thinking... I've done financial planning for the better part of 25 years of my life. And very rarely do I find that to be true, let alone from someone who's been here seven years, working as an Uber driver, feeding a family of five. And so I just think it is possible to get ahead. And the more that we can change the infrastructure of you know, optimizing, had I gotten out of that car and I had the chance not to tip him directly, but to tip to his investment account, to tip to pay off his car mm. loan to tip into his college savings. Like, how cool would that be? That is what we are building at mm. Orem, is the ability for that to happen instantly, be routed in the right direction, and the intelligence of knowing what's the best financial decision we could help this person make right now and get it done. So that they're constantly, in, a, in like you said, in a place where they're thriving. So I know that's a lot on the immigrant topic, but certainly a passion area for me.
1: Well, and you started to shine a light on the future that Orem is making possible. As you think about that, are there innovations and is there progress to be made that gets you particularly excited? You know, when you think about the vision that you have for the company and what you all are building together, is there an outcome that you have in your mind? Like,
0: this is what we're driving toward making possible. Definitely. I I think there's two things I would say here. One, I mentioned a little bit already, you know, I wanted to build the easy button. I just want people to be like, yes. Optimize my financial life, right? Because actually mathematically, like the math isn't hard. And I was fortunate to build and patent some algorithms in one of my earlier jobs where that is what I specialized in. The math, so to speak, of what to do with the next dollar, specific to Bethany versus Stephanie versus John versus Jenny versus anyone, that's not the hard part. The hard part is always the action. If the inertia that if you leave it to me at the end of the month, not only may I not have it when I need it, I ultimately don't really want to sit down on a Saturday and do my finances. But imagine if you could pay off credit card debt. If you spend $500 in your credit card, your repayment will automatically kick in a $10 a day repayment until you're whole again. Well, you're not going to make a $10 a day or even a dollar a day contribute. That's opportunity cost. That's too much overhead for you. But if the system did that, imagine how much more fluid you would be financially and well off. You wouldn't miss deadlines. And the system would know this is the highest interest rate, most expensive debt prioritize this. It would take the emotion out of those decisions. So as far as automation goes, it's a big area for us, right? Step one is to make money move in real time at all times. That is what we have done and are doing now. Step two is to build that orchestration that can live inside your bank account, your financial services products, wherever you engage with your money, and you can set a set of rules, or you can just say optimize, and those things can kick in for you. The second piece, and I think the kind of truer North Star ultimately, is that Perhaps we don't need to have a transaction go from your investment account back to a bank over to your credit card. And in fact, money could move on a fundamentally different system, not just better like we've made it today with Aura, but actually change the dynamics of the flow of funds and to think about what's called point to point transactions, intra network settlement, a bit like Visa and MasterCard. So that North Star is very much about actually rewriting the way that settlement and money movement works in America. So that we can avoid some of the common pitfalls that are true today, not just on speed and risk, but ultimately on the number of steps, the number of costs, and the number of touch points that are required to ultimately optimize, whether it's for a small business or an individual, those financial outcomes that we want to build better.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Stephanie. And as you're building toward that future, you're building your own team. And you've actually said the most fun part of building Orem is bringing all these incredible humans together to form a dream team. And you've already shared with us how diverse your team, 50% of the board is female about 50% of the company is non-white and you all are still a pretty small company like it's an early stage for you to Mm -hmm. place such a premium on diversity but when I hear diversity I hear high performing I hear top performing top performers I'd love for you to share a little bit more about the team and the texture of the team and maybe an example of where you made a winning decision because you had the right people around the table.
0: Oh, goodness. There's many stories that come to mind about how we make best best, good and better decisions with a variety of thought leaders. What a lot of it boils down to when you think about the fabric of a high-performing team, diversity is absolutely part of it, right? Diversity of thought through diversity of people, and that is one of our core values, cannot be achieved if you don't truly index on diversity from the minute you start hiring people. Because if you get to 10, you've kind of calcified your identity, And you've calcified the network from which you're going to continue to grow and hire. So that's one of the reasons why I think you see it across the board is it it started with the check, the inspiration check, and it persisted through all the next generations of hiring and thinking about growing the team. Because I don't think you can wake up at 20 or 30 or 50 or 75 where we are today and say, let's change that. You've entrenched. Where I think that we've made substantially better and different decisions is when we combined not only diversity of background but also diversity of fast moving fintechs who are or tech tech companies who are like risk taking and wild wild west with traditional financial services where you get the best in breed of thinking about risk management and regulatory constraints and so it's really marrying together this i think very beautiful intersection of old and new there was an old world financial services has existed we should respect that We need to challenge ourselves and be the challengers. And so the cultural norms of folks on the team are a big influence in how we might talk and speak and think about decisions. So one of the things that has helped us a lot, you know, we have a fair number of profiles that would probably self-describe as introverted. Introversion can stem from feeling othered. It can stem from feeling different. It can just be a natural bias that you have, but the propensity to stay quiet. And yet, here we are in a meeting in a company in which you have to get on Zoom to see each other. So, you might have five other people in it. The sort of bias in that is that the introverts will stay off camera and stay quiet. So, how do you compel those folks who have great ideas, who might themselves be underrepresented and already feeling that challenge of belonging and that challenge of putting their voice in the room? How do you give them a voice? Well, we do it in lots of ways. We've recently gone through unconscious bias training. And I think that was one of those decisions of like, by having diversity, we realized that we have to work on those unconscious biases. And ultimately, also by doing things like standardizing pre-read documents. Here's what we're doing in the meeting. Here's what the participants are doing in the meeting. And Bethany, you're a participant. Would you mind coming on camera? Will you talk about your part? You can go off camera if that otherwise makes you uncomfortable. Like very small things, right? We haven't heard from everyone. Our purpose of our meeting is to get an input from every attendee. For those that haven't spoken, can you please speak your part? Things like that, right? They're very simple. So I think in many cases, it again, just picking on you know small little threads, it's really forced us to think about standardization of communication, a deep investment in written communication. Some people are visual learners. So we video and record a lot of things. Some people are audio learners and they want to listen to it. And just get caught up, they don't wanna come to the meeting. So, we've tried to really represent work styles, representation of different employee segments, time zones in this complicated but very elegant group that we've pulled together. And while we've not perfected it, and I'm all ears on good advice from the audience and and Bethany from you, I think we have found our way in making sure that having diversity doesn't become a checkbox, leading with and elevating that diversity of thought across all categories empowers us to build better.
1: That is so fascinating. And it's just awesome to hear about the infrastructure that you all have put in place to ensure that every employee can contribute and thrive and feel seen and heard. I was laughing to myself when you were saying some people are visual learners, some people are audio learners. An ongoing point of friction between me and my husband, who I love to bits, is he'll say, can you look at me while I try to explain this to you? And I'll say no, because I have to write it down in order to internalize. And so I'm going to have
0: him listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You can tie this back to my dad again, because some people are uncomfortable using written because English is not their first language. I actually don't know, but I'd hazard to guess about 50% of the company probably indexes on English as a second language. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at a resume or a written document, I'm not reading, judging those details, especially if I can discern that you're not working in your primary language. I'm fortunate enough to be bilingual in Spanish and I can speak like crazy. You asked me Mm -hmm. to write it. It's not so good. Mm -hmm. It's harder to write. Mm -hmm. So again, visual learners, audio learners, maybe I'm good at both, but I don't, feel like I write as well as I speak because of my Mm. language. Or maybe I feel like I write, I write better, but I have a stutter or I have a a very strong accent. And so I'm hard to communicate. So I just stay quiet. So we try Mm -hmm. to find places that those things aren't the blockers for Mm -hmm. getting the good ideas on the board. I Um, love it.
1: And again, like your lived experience really informing those decisions.
0: How did you get to be bilingual? So I studied Spanish in high school and sort of all the requisite, you know, things you do when you're young. And then my mom had lived abroad, and so it's always, always been attractive to me to go. She's also bilingual. Go live abroad. So when I was in college, I did a study abroad program for a year in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I landed with a host family. And I would sit there at dinner the first couple of weeks and be like, I'm exhausted from going to school in Spanish all day. And you're all talking to me in Spanish, and I'm exhausted. And I'm just going to eat my dinner and go to bed. You know, week over week, by about 90 days, something clicked as it does with language, because I was immersed in it, right? And I kicked into a place where the natural sort of construct started to really become something I could do without feeling exhausted and and having to be quiet by the end of the day. And luckily, it stuck around. I've had a chance to do quite a bit in my career that indexes on translation, particularly in financial services, which I did for about 10 years. And I find that I don't use it as often, and I wish I did. It's one of those natural things that give me one night in a country that's Spanish speaking and I'll be dreaming the next day in Spanish. And it's very powerful. That is so cool. Yeah.
1: So one of the things that I thought was interesting about the norms that you all have put in place in terms of soliciting contributions and input across the board from the team is an idea that we articulate at Breakline as making the unspoken assumption known. Because Mm -hmm. when we're coming from highly networked and well-resourced backgrounds, there tends to be a culture around that that's so obvious when you're a part of it that you don't even think to explain it to another person. Very true. And yet, if someone doesn't have the context for understanding where the guardrails are or the contours of those cultural norms... It's very easy to bump into them and set off a Mm -hmm. red flag, not because of intelligence or aptitude or ability, but just for lack of context. Mm -hmm. And so we're big fans in just articulate what's obvious to you so that it's obvious Mm -hmm. to everybody. And I see you all doing that. And I think that that's such a huge best practice when you're trying to build a diverse team.
0: Well, interestingly, diversity aside, I think just building a team, yeah. you would say articulating the assumptions, articulating the context. The number of times that I've thought we're decided and I heard something a certain way and my bias informed it and it's different than how you heard it is infinite. In fact, it just happens like 10 minutes before I got on this podcast with you, where I was like, I thought we decided, you know, so I think communication is always a challenge. And to your point. Putting context, putting assumption, and then getting ace, clear assumptions, clear expectations, alignment, getting us to see it the same way the best we can. And feeling comfortable. You know, there's a woman on our team. She uses the phrase FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I have FUD. Can I put it in the room? That also helps articulate what people were assuming and therefore what they were worried about. And my coach has helped me with this a lot, which is when somebody tells you a fear, a fear of going too fast, a fear of breaking something, a fear, whatever it may be. You can easily say, as I could, I'm the CEO, I don't worry about that. We've got plenty of money in the bank or we'll be fine or I can fix that problem. But by saying, don't worry about that, you're undermining that they're allowed to have that emotion. So let them have the emotion and then walk through using language. And I can't say I've perfected this, but I think about it a lot. Okay, what are you worried about? What goes wrong? What dominoes fall? And instead of just that instinctive, like, don't worry about that. And so those are also small, I think, micro aspects to our culture, ones we work on every day that do try to help with what is inevitably hard, I think, in communication with diverse teams and with regular teams of just how we heard it, how we perceive it, and what we might not be saying. And the more we can articulate some of those things that otherwise go as assumptions, I think certainly builds common ground and builds that basis for common understanding and therefore ultimately the ability to move a lot faster and be empowered and empowering each other and holding each other accountable for making sure we state the things. I don't read minds. So state the things that we're worried about and let's make sure that nobody bumps into those accidentally. Part of what I was thinking
1: about when you were explaining that is just how much communication is going on within your team and how that in and of itself is a best practice. Because I think that there's like American society, we have this discomfort with feedback. And, <laughs> and, you know, and it's the kind of thing like it doesn't, especially if it's constructive, it doesn't get easier over time. Like you want to get right in there and address whatever right. happened quickly. And it's especially important when we have a diverse team, you know, just so mm-hmm. like because we're constantly trying to make sure that we stay in alignment, especially when we're working so hard and so fast. But we have discomfort around constructive feedback. And then I think sometimes we have discomfort providing feedback to people who are unlike us in some respects. And one of my mentors, and I I talk about him a lot on the podcast, Andy Rockliff, who co-founded Benchmark Capital. And Mm -hmm. I worked with him closely for years when I was at Stanford. (laughs) He just gives me tough feedback all the time. But what makes it hearable for me is he respects me. Mm -hmm. It's an indication of his expectations for me and his belief that I can rise to those expectations. So the role of feedback, you know, this is a very communications rich environment, it sounds like to me, and the role of
0: feedback in that environment.
1: would love for you to comment on that.
0: Well, you've hit on a very popular topic for Orem because feedback is something we work on and endeavor to do better every day. We've put things in place both by way of training and then ultimately by way of process and ability to make feedback part of our culture. And to your point, especially when it's constructive, waiting a month and adding six things to the list doesn't make it better to digest. It makes it harder. Being brave about giving that feedback, it takes a, a braveness to say it. And it also takes time, right? So how do you approach someone, especially on Zoom? Hey, do you have a minute? Uh, as w- which can feel very scary. Do you have a minute from the CEO is like oh shit. But if you say, "Hey Bethany, I was in the meeting today where you presented your thesis on this aspect of machine learning. Do you have 5 minutes where I can give you feedback? I have a diamond and a spade. That means I have positive and negative feedback to give you, or constructive feedback." And so now you know the context, you know specifically what I'm going to tell you feedback about, and I'm giving you a chance to tell me when is good for you. So you can be in a good headspace. So those are some of the things that the trainings have helped us get practiced in. And then ultimately, actually, what we learned and have now changed is that one-on-ones where you think you're going to give or get feedback actually end up being really tactical, right? They're 30 minutes. They move quickly. There's a lot going on. And you store up your emotions. And people kept saying, well, we should start having... Formal performance reviews. Do you really want a formal performance review? I'm not sure. I think the root cause is you want to know where you stand in your work every day. That we can fix with feedback. So now, once a month, we have feedback week, which is the week in which your one on one shifts from its average if it's 30 minutes to either 45 or 60. And it's a chance for the employee to talk to their manager. There's a little bit of manager to employee feedback, but it's primarily employee to manager what I did well, what I'm working on, what I need your support on. And that is a way to change the conversation about knowing where you stand and to put FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that like you might get fired or you're not doing good enough and set it aside. And then also have the very discreet things that you could do better by 10%. We've tried to create a norm. I don't think everyone uses it yet, but it is around the business of saying, I just did X. What would have made it 10% better? because I don't really want you to tear it apart because that's going to hurt. But if I just ask you very concretely what would make it 10% better, you'll probably tell me. And then I benefit from knowing that, you know, maybe you'd say like, good job. And I'm like, good job at what? What was good and what wasn't good. So it's very prescriptive in terms of being able to identify just simply congratulating someone and, and especially someone who's not ever had that experience. I think, Bethany, as we talked about bringing in underrepresented Teammates means that this might be the first time they've ever done public speaking. This might be the first time that they've done their first code review if they're in tech. This might be the first time that they've written a sales script, whatever it is, their first customer call, you name it. And just simply congratulating them doesn't really give them the data to become very great at what they're doing. And if anything, maybe falsely bolsters the wrong things because they in their head think, oh, I was great because I did X. And I'm thinking you were great because you did Y, but I didn't say it. And I want you to do more of Y and less of X. I have to clearly state those things. So feedback is an absolutely very big thing for us. And it's something you're never perfect at, you're always working on. But I do think it's a difference in our culture and an important one for a company like Orem where you don't bump into each other getting coffee where you might actually have had that casual discussion. And so we have to make time and room for it And we've thought about a lot of ways, hopefully, that can be good takeaways for the audience and trying those things in their own lives and getting good at it because it is about making you better, as you said, right? It's about Mm -hmm. trusting that this person wants me to grow and be better and better and better at what I'm doing. It's not about tearing you down. It's always putting you in a place of having the upper hand of, like I said, that 10% improvement. So helpful. And as
1: you were talking about the one on one conversations that were really providing a forum for the employee to provide feedback to the manager, I wanted to share one other tactic, which is Jim Patel, who's a Stanford professor. He was one of the co founders of the design school at Stanford, a sort of founding figure within the design thinking movement. And he says when you're creating prototypes, don't just mm-hmm. put one on the table for feedback, put two. Mm-hmm. Because if you put one, the tendency is, oh, it's perfect. (laughs) It's great because we don't want to ruffle feathers. But if you put two, then you give people an opportunity to compare and you're more likely to get the real feedback. And as leaders, we can also do that as well on a conceptual basis with our teammates. Stephanie, I know we're coming up on time. I have one last question for you, which is you're a female founder, And we want more of these. (laughs) And you're a female founder with a female investor, you know, lead investor Mm -hmm. in that first round. So pretty unusual, unfortunately, still. And yet you're a phenomenal person for other women and other aspiring entrepreneurs in general to look up to. How did you find the courage to take the leap? Orem is your first company. This is the first time you're a founder. How did you... Decide you, that you were going to be brave and just go after it. <laughs> what specifically did you
0: do to get in the headspace and the heart space to take this leap? Well, there are still days, Bethany, where I think, What have I leaped into? So I think that is always true as a founder takes the leap is that you certainly don't doubt why you did it, but the magnitude of what you've decided to do first, it was just take a check, and then it was build a team, then it was build a product, then it was build a bigger team. And now I have a responsibility to pay a salary to 75 people, 40% of whom have kids at home, right? And that's just big obligation. I have an obligation to return shareholder money with a high ROI, <laughs> big obligation. So those are things that emotions that I think, you know, are there at the beginning and they just get bigger. The actual decision to take the leap of faith was fueled by two people. One, Alexa von Tobel, writing the inspiration check and just saying, you have a sixth gear, she said to me. And I was like, huh. Had to think about that, and I was like, "What does that mean? Why will that be important?" And ultimately, just her encouragement that the idea I had was worth doing because I think a lot of us have these ideas. I would guarantee you, everyone's had an idea that is a billion-dollar business. It's just being able to do it. So that's one, and two is my husband. One, he's one of my biggest supporters, and two, you know, he he created the financial space that you know he'd stay in a steady job, and I'd go take zero, and we'd see how long that was sustainable for our family. And ultimately, his support to cook dinner every night at six o'clock, relieve our nanny if I'm running late, manage the kids while I go away on a business trip and fill in many of the blanks of things that a mom is usually doing. It's a sick day, I'll take the kids to the doctor. There's no equal. There's no work-life balance. So those aren't the things that you're endeavoring to kind of figure out when you're founding, but it's a support system. And the third pillar is my mom, who is just like my husband, like Both rooting me on when it gets hard, but most importantly, supporting me so that I can be in this seat physically for the number of hours a day it takes and bridging gaps in my life. You know, she'll intuit that I need something. We're getting ready to take a trip. And she says, oh, you know, can I book the COVID tests? You know, we know we need PCRs to do this thing. I'll I'll get those done. Or I went to the store and I got XYZ in preparation for the trip. Just little things like that are life-changing in making you feel like, okay, deep breath. For all the weight I have to carry every day, which is a lot, there are other people supporting me, backing me. And my cap table, you know, all the investors since Alexa are a text or a phone call away and they take my calls when I'm laughing, when I'm crying, when I'm both. There are many women, more than you might think, luckily, who are beginning to found companies. We've formed friendships and relationships in places where we can and lean into each other. So hopefully it's all those things and more. There's no one special thing that says this is the right time. I think much like having kids or anything else, it's the serendipity, a feeling like the problem you wanna solve is something you wanna put your life's work into. And whether it makes money, you'll figure that out. But the first kind of starting point for me is passion. And then it's taking that passion and figuring out how to action it and just believing like my dad did, if I just do 1% more today, that'll be 1% closer to 100%. So let's do it. Stephanie Kirkpatrick, Founder and CEO of Oram, what
1: a treat to have you with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your background, your insights, your wisdom. So, so fascinating to hear more. Very lucky to have had you. Thank you so much. Lucky
0: to be here. Thanks for a great conversation. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling A little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel
1: free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling.
0: Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.